Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. I'm so honored to have Kevin McGarry back with us. He is not a stranger to the World Prayer Network family at all. He's been on multiple times. <clears throat> He's, he gives the best biblical explanation in terms of the nature of critical race theory I've seen. I don't think we've interviewed him on another topic, but he's one of the finest I've ever seen on a father discipling his children, even all the way into adulthood. And an unbelievable story there. He's a expert on the issue of fatherlessness as well. But he comes today to talk to us about DEI, and I'm gonna let him explain exactly what that means. So welcome, Kevin. Kevin, would you take the first few moments and just explain a little bit about your life, who you are. Give them a one-minute or two-minute overview of who Kevin McGarry is, hmm. where you, where you, what you do, where you live, et cetera, your family, and then let's just get right into the topic of DEI. All right, awesome. Uh, it's always uh, an honor for me, Dr. Garlow, to be with you. Uh, I thank you and Mario for having me on. Uh, so, look, I, I, you know, born and raised in inner city San Francisco, um, uh, was a crazy boy from the hood, did all kinds of crazy stuff growing up and uh, went to San Jose State, got a sociology degree. And so uh, was born in abject poverty in Hunters Point uh, project houses in San Francisco to lower middle class uh, neighborhood to Marxism in college. And then when I got out and met my, the love of my life now 36 years, um, we decided that we wanted to take God strictly at his word. So we started living strictly biblically. We were kind of carnal Christians before that time. And uh, when we really started to do that, he manifested, uh, you know, incredible things in our life, including now my sixth book. This is this new book that I'm on. All the books that I'm writing they're birthed in a matter of weeks, not months or multiple months or years, uh, because it's just a download. It's just Holy Spirit saying, hey, you know, I, I need you to write about this. So I'm just a vessel. And uh, so this this last book, uh, I wrote a book last year called Woked Up, finally putting an ax to the taproot of white supremacy and racism. The current book that uh, the Lord has me on now is on DEI. It's uh, it's called DEI in 3D. Uh, now, what the Lord was really kind of helping me to understand is that right now, when you ask people about DEI, there's all this superlative, uh, uh, you know, kind of flippant answers. Oh, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and don't you want everybody to experience equality and blah, 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 blah. I mean, there's this, this, this sort of um, uh, non-specific uh, type of, of, of ways that they define DEI and, and uh, what he helped me to see is that that's all two dimensional. So in other words, it's like looking at a, a picture. It's just two dimensional. You see, you, you can't go into that other dimension. He says, uh, what's helped me to understand is that uh, explaining and exploring DEI in 3D is an in-depth look at DEI. What is it really true? Where does it come from? What are the foundations? What are the you know, sort of inner workings. Um, what is the, if it's a structure, what is the roof that overlays everything? You know, that kind of thing. So DEI in 3D is uh, is the current project and it should be done. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty much, I think I may have one chapter, one or two chapters to complete it probably in the next two weeks. 
So uh, by June, I expect to have the, the book out in hard copy and, and available because the reality is, is DEI is really um, rampaging throughout the world. You have the World Economic Forum that's doing social credit scoring, ESG. Those are all aspects, if you will, of DEI um, because they're metrics that they look at within ESG as to your DEI standards, right? So uh, we have that. We have um, uh, every college, pretty much every college, university. Uh, you have even school districts. Uh, you have the entirety of it's an all of government approach to DEI, according to uh, Joe Biden, uh, via his executive action that he did. I think it was the second or third day that he actually came to the office and he said, look, we're going to have an all of and then he put funding behind it over the past. I think it was the past month. So this this thing is is really it's compulsory. It's really pervading all of workplaces, uh, educational institutions, and uh, by virtue of ESG scoring and then that kind of thing, social scores, it's pervading every aspect of our lives. So we need to understand what it is and what it's not, whether it's indeed, uh, you know, uh, something that can be embraced uh, by people of faith and whether we should encourage, embrace it, or whether we should reject it. Is it altruistic or is it selfish and you know, some other kind of nefarious thing. So that's what I fully explore in DEI and 3D. And uh, and so, again, it's good to be here. And, you know, we can we can get in as much of that as you as you think you want to. I suppose DEI, diversity, uh, in, in, um, equity, diversity, and equity and inclusion. Yes. Basically, when it, that those words sound good. And just of themselves, they're actually very wonderful words. <clears throat> Nothing inherently evil with uh, those three words. But when put together in a package, it seems to me it, it ends, ends meritocracy, number one, and rewards um, uh, simply inactivity. Yep. And, and the equity is an affirmation basically of socialism and doing away with an entrepreneurial spirit. And inclusion is just a, a, a statement to force you to affirm homosexuality and so-called transgenderism. That's basically what it is. Am I overstating it or understating it? No, you're 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 right over the target. That's a good explanation. Um, so when you actually look at the, but the devil's in the details, right? So when you actually, you know, kind of take the plumbing out and you go all the way under the architecture and the infrastructure of what it is. Uh, and the way I describe it in this book, I, I use metaphors, right? So I described it as a structure. So I described it as imagine you're building a house and what, you know, first you're going to put down a foundation and then you're going to, you know, secure that foundation with your cornerstones of whatever that's going to secure the structure on its edges. And then, of course, you do the inner framing, which is the inner workings, and then you put the roof on. So uh, what I take the reader through is, well, what are the foundations? And if you look at the, if you look at the foundations for why DEI is even a conversation for us, you have to go back a little bit and you realize that there was a particular nefarious individual that created a, um, a distinction that did not exist prior to him creating it. He created a distinction that basically instantiated 
uh, uh, inequality, uh, racism, and white supremacy. Uh, that individual, by the way, is, is Charles Darwin. So um, without going to all this history, the, my book, Woke Up, goes into a lot of this detail. But essentially what Darwin did in The Descent of Man is he characterized people like me with my paint job as, uh, as, uh, as, as savages, uh, apes, gorillas, and uh, subhuman. That was the first time in human history that a known scientific brilliant mind who was world renowned would make such an audacious declaration. Mm. Now, we had, you know, of course, people always treated people with partiality since the fall of man in the garden. We had that. It was tribalism, uh, it was uh, ethnic strife. You know, these types of things happen throughout, it's, it's throughout humankind. But there was no distinction for supremacy, none. The people just didn't like you because you were from a different area or you looked different or, you know, whatever. Um, but there was no distinction that you are literally subhuman. And so I can treat you in any kind of way. And, but Darwin declared it so. He said, Blacks, you know, look, my evolutionary scale, you see, whites, we fully evolved. Uh, we plateaued. We're the first ones who have evolved. Everybody else, every other ethnicity evolves at different stages and levels. Look at the Blacks, they're still at a subhuman level. And so that's what happened. He, he literally instantiated white supremacy, racism, and inequality in one fell swoop in the descent of man. A lot of people don't realize this, but he also instantiated in one fell swoop sexism and misogyny. He said, look, uh, you know, I'm a brilliant scientist and I've done all of the uh, cranial cavities and studies of the females compared to men. And their cranial cavity is much, much smaller than that of males. So their intellectual capacity is much less than that of, of males. It's Charles Darwin. It's in the descent of man you can read. So, uh, so he says, women can be relegated. I mean, you know, they, they don't have the intellectual capacity. So the reason why we had women's suffrage with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Frederick Douglass starting the women's suffrage movement is because of Darwin. And uh, they had to fight just to be able to vote because men thought, what are you talking about? You're a woman, you don't have the intellect. Darwin. So, so that's the foundation, okay? Because what happens is then when we finally did go through reconstruction and we started to get some degree of, you know, being able to operate in society, uh, we had to fight off this mindset that blacks are innately incapable of thinking certain ways or doing certain work. It's innate because they're, they're, they're still trying to climb that subhuman scale, right? And uh, women as well. So, so the whole conversation around equality in, in the workplace especially comes from the foundations laid by Charles Robert Darwin. That was about 1854, 18, what, 18, what uh, it, it actually went further than that. It was, uh, yeah, it, it start, his early works were in the 1850s and he had notes and all of that. But in 1859, I think is, is probably what you're thinking about, when he came out with uh, uh, 
natural selection and, and um, uh, it was uh, natural selection and, and, and his book on natural selection and, and survival of the species or something like survival, that. Yeah, survival of the fittest. And the subtopic on that book, that was his first book, was for the preservation of most favored races. Again, the race conversation did not happen to any large degree at all prior to Darwin making this declaration in his book. That's now, remarkable. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Now, we did have in the 1770s, Johann Frederick Blumenbach, who was the first renowned scientist to make a declaration about races. But his were all geography. So it was, he took a look at the seven continents. He says, look, five continents are heavily, heavily populated. Therefore, we have, um, you know, we have Ethiopian, which would be the African continent, uh, and, and the Americans, which would be Native Americans, a Mongolian, which would be some of the sub, you know, East Asian, and then, you know, and, and it was just five classifications. And then, of course, he had uh, Caucasian out of Europe and that. So it's five classifications. That was in 1770. And what Johann Frederick Blumenbach, who is the exact same pedigree, except uh, eight years, uh, 50 years before Darwin, exact same pedigree as Darwin, he said, look, I've done the research with, on, on Blacks, and he says, there is no intellectual or cognitive differences between Blacks in any other ethnicity. This is what, in 1770. So when Darwin came around, he literally made it up to create this inequality. He literally did it on purpose because it had already been researched, it had already been documented in the same pedigree as he, he was. He was an uh, Johann Frederick Blumenbach, an anthropologist, renowned scientist, et cetera, et cetera. But Darwin made this up. And a lot of his influence was his older cousin, Thomas Malthus. You've heard of Malthusian eugenics and, and this and that. Uh, so, so that was Darwin's older first cousin who really kind of, you know, I think influenced him in a big way on the survival of the fittest stuff and, and really encouraged him to put some of this really, uh, you know, crazy thinking in his theories. Uh, but bottom line is that's the foundation. So I hope I didn't go on too long on the foundation. No, that's extremely helpful. Very important for you to share. Yeah. So the, the fact is, is that we have been treated unequal uh, to a large degree, especially uh, coming out of Reconstruction and all that. that. That's what it was. It was people were doing women and ethnic minorities, but especially blacks. OK, then we go into uh, you go into situations where you see, uh, you know, and I, I reference this a little bit, um, you know, uh, you know, out of Reconstruction, you see Jim Crow laws, you see the Homestead Act, which the Homestead was was basically there to help blacks acquire land and that kind of thing. But because that was governed strictly by, you know, the Democrats, they gave the newly arriving immigrants all of that kind of stuff because they said, look, blacks, they can't own land. I mean, they're not capable of that. So so we we were treated disparately and unequally through a lot of that, that early time in the early 1900s. And so then we come up to, um, 
you know, almost in the civil rights, but even before that, we had the sanitary district in uh, Tennessee, I believe, Memphis, who went on strike. And you, you've seen these commercials, or you've seen these signs where it says, I am a man. Essentially, Blacks were tr always trying to just say, look, please, can you just treat me like I'm a human being here? I mean, you know, I am a man, I'm a person, I deserve the same rights that you do. Can you, you know, I know we're in the workplace and you think, you're thinking Darwinistic and you're thinking I'm still subhuman, but let's get over that. I'm a man. Okay, so, uh, so we had those types of things happening. We had the civil rights here. You know, we had to go through it almost, uh, you know, what, 20 or so times. It was many, many decades to finally get it in 1964. Uh, you had honorable men like uh, the pioneer of the civil rights movement was Frederick Douglass, of course. But then you have Robert D. Washington. You have uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, ultimately, who's seen that in 1964, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, but the reality is, is in workplaces, in small groups, and in certain communities, Blacks were still being treated disproportionately and different. It's because of the Darwinistic mindset. Okay. So, um, so then we, so, so that's the foundation, that's the structure, and that's a little bit of history and background. When you get to the, uh, again, using the metaphor of a structure, uh, so the foundations there, the cornerstones is, are inequality. The structure and the inner workings is all Marx, because Marx was a protege of Darwin. Marx and Ingo's, uh, all of their early works were dedicated to Darwin. Uh, so he mentored them through their ideologies. And so the inner workings of DEI are all about, um, uh, if you know anything about Marx, and I have to explain a little bit about his history, uh, Marx, because this is all, this is how it comes out in the DEI inner workings. You have to understand who they're relying on to put the frame up, right? So Marx never held a job. So a lot of people don't know this, but he was, he was a grifter. He had seven children um, and a wife and a live-in mistress that he didn't pay one plug nickel and she slaved over him and his family for decades. So he was a horrible sexist misogynist. He was a sex slaver before there was sex slavery. I mean, this is just terrible. Um, he literally, all of the sustenance uh, came from his parents. He was, uh, you know, he was a, a, a grifter and uh, basically a loser, and he had to borrow money perpetually, constantly from his parents. He did occasionally have, you know, articles that he would publish, and he'd get little bits here and there, but he didn't have a job. So we're, we're relying on the mindset from a horrible person. He was so bitter and aggrieved because he had boils over all of his body for decades. So think about Joe. That was Marx, Karl Marx. Uh, his entire body was covered with boils. He never took a shower because it was painful. It hurt. So he stunk like crazy. This is the guy that people today, including BLM, would say, oh, you have a proud Marxist. Excuse me? This guy is unbelievable. And he was just crazy. So, um, so, so, so anyway, um, so he was, he, he was aggrieved perpetually. He hated God. He hated the notion of God because he felt like, you know, look, I'm, I'm getting the, you know, short end of the stick. I'm not getting my due 
I'm a brilliant mind. I can't get a job. And, you know, I have to borrow from parents. Here I am in my 40s and 50s. I'm still borrowing from parents. So, uh, so he, was, he, he, was, uh, he was looking for retribution. So that's where, if you look at Marxism, which starts with socialism, uh, and for him, this is linear and this is stages. Socialism, first stage. Marxism, second stage. The ultimate is, uh, in his mind, the utopia is communism. And he would warn anybody, look, don't, get, don't take any of my philosophies unless you're intending to go full communist. So, uh, so socialism was just a stage to get you into this idea of inequality uh, and, and therefore some level of wealth redistribution. Marxism is uh, taking a little bit more of the means of production, but still having some pseudo property of your own in that. Communism is a full state run. Everybody is completely equal and it's, that's, that's what you have. His idea for the workplace is, look, we need to have collective, um, uh, collective action within the workplace to where the workers would become the, uh, the, 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 the prime and the business owners and the managers would be subservient. This is ideally how he would work. He knew that that's, that, that was highly unrealistic because business owners put, made, took the risk, they started the business and for them to all become subservient. But he felt that at least everything should be equal. The only way that he could really pull that off is that if government took control over means of production and get rid of the, in his mind, fat cats who start these businesses, these capitalists, get rid of them. And therefore we can have everybody equal. So he believed in, like you're saying, in providing losers, failures, people who have no competency whatsoever uh, good paying jobs and the same equivalency as, you know, doctors, surgeons, for instance. So you have people in his mind that are highly specialized, a nuclear physicist, uh, you know, engineers that build bridges and, you know, airplane parts, uh, pilots that should be paid at the same level as flight attendants that should be paid at the same level as a, as a um, uh, you know, uh, a beginning engineer, uh, even though you're a nuclear physicist. But that's his level, that was his thinking is equality. Now, the, the whole idea of equality in that way has been taken over to mean equity. So the people that espouse equity today means that literally you level the playing field you take all of these people who are in hierarchies and management and you basically say, look, unless there's black or other ethnicities or other genders uh, in, these, in these positions of power, um, uh, then you're not, you're not, it's not equitable. Doesn't matter whether they have the core competency, skill set, any of that, uh, you must promote them to those positions. This is again, taking that Marxist, sort of the way that he, that I would design metaphorically a building, his inner workings are all of these types of 
connotations. Is this making sense or am I speaking too fast? Or No, this is, this is excellent. Keep going. And as you go somewhere along the line, uh, make a distinction, if you would, between equality versus equity. Oh, good. That's actually my next point. So I'm glad you're asking that. So uh, in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and when we saw the, you know, the signs, hey, I am a man, we were just like, look, can, can we just be equal? I mean, come on. You're treating us like we're still subhuman, you know, Darwinists. Uh, we're equal. We're, everybody's equal. Can we just be equal? That was what that fight was. Then we had uh, affirmative action programs that really helped with that as well. So we had affirmative action come around in the early 1970s. Uh, <laughs> primarily, that was at its height, I guess, 1970. And, and, and those were designed to actually encourage organizations to, you know, with quotas and policies and et cetera, to invite more ethnics and in particular blacks to the table so we can finally begin to actually be seen as as equals in the workplace, especially. So um, that that that's different than equity. So equality means can we at least have equal opportunities? Now, let me make this statement. I, I've been in uh, the corporate world, you know, all my life. Um, and I've seen it all. Okay, and, and there are instances of inequality, and I'm sure it still happens today. So when I was going up through the corporate ranks, the inequality or the uh, not having equal opportunity for me was when you would have the old boys network, right? Who, um, hey, you know, let's go get around to golf in. And then while you're golfing, hey, you know, my uh, son-in-law, he's, He's looking for an opportunity. You got something there, uh, Joe, Jim, George? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll make room for him. Have him come over to see me, and, you know. And, and, and these people were basically, you know, ushered into these environments uh, based upon relationship, right? On the golf course and bars, whatever. Uh, a lot of blacks, we didn't have that kind of relationship. I know when I was going up through corporate ranks, I strictly relied on meritocracy to put me in positions of power. Explain, explain what meritocracy means. That, that means that on merit alone, that means you prove your competency. I've always been a competitive person. So, um, and I was, I was selling multi-million dollar software systems, okay? So, um, I always was number one, by God's grace, not because I'm a great salesman. I, well, I, I think you're also a great salesman, but God's grace Help make you that. That's right. And I was always number one, but it was strictly because I'm very competitive and God gave me capacity to be number one. Um, but it was always because I, I didn't, and I didn't do any deal. I didn't go drink with these guys. I didn't go on golf course. I didn't do any of that. I was really, hey, McGarry, no, he's on his own. He's doing his thing. Leave him alone. You know, and I didn't hang out with the boys. But I do know, and I have seen a lot of instances of that going on. I don't know how, how much that goes on today because we, we have these programs that are bringing these issues to the forefront and that's all great. So, um, so the bottom line is, 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 you know, coming into the corporate world in the seventies, eighties, nineties, uh, there were a lot of people who were, who were basically engrafted into organizations based upon relationships with family members and friends and this and that and whatever, uh, that a lot of 
blacks were precluded out of because we didn't necessarily have friends that way within the corporate world. And, um, and, and so that in a sense is, is not having equal opportunity because what you're saying is, look, I, I'll make room for, you know, for my boy's boy, but you know, if you come in here and sign an application and that, oh, we don't, we're, we're full. So, so that kind of thing was happening. It still happens, I would imagine, to some degree. Um, and that's when you have inequality. There's no equality of opportunity. If you have equality of opportunity, then you're saying to your friend on the golf course, look, he's welcome to apply. Uh, but, you know, uh, right now we've got, you know, we've got, we're taking, you know, resumes for that. Uh, but he's welcome to apply. I don't really have any juice to get him in here that way. He's got to prove that he has competencies and the merits and all of that to get that position. But I encourage you, I encourage you to tell him, look, now's the time we're hiring. That's equal opportunity, right? So, um, so because we weren't seeing that, uh, we were sort of having this dance with inequality. Now, uh, those who have taken on the lens of Karl Marx, perpetually aggrieved, always feeling like, hey, you know, white man, you know, is this and that, and, you know, they're racist and all of this, who are, you know, fully imbibing this whole CRT stuff. Uh, those are the ones who um, are demanding by virtue of internal collective action within these organizations, mob action, literally, they're demanding that their senior officers make these DEI changes, which have everything to do with equity, not equality. Equality, again, is just equal opportunity. Equity is, look, you don't have a black in that boardroom right now. You need to put me there. Irrespective of whether I have, you know, I could be a street sweeper, and I just came in this afternoon. I deserve being in your boardroom because you don't have blacks represented. Uh, you don't have black rep, rep, blacks or other ethnicities represented at all levels of your hierarchy within the organization. Why not? Well, it just so happens we're in Stonesboro, Arkansas, and we got 1% black here, so maybe that has something to do with it. And nothing to do with it. I know I as was sweeping, uh, sweeping the streets yesterday. Uh, I'm the black in the city. Uh, you need to put me in it. It's that kind of a thing. <laughs> I hope I'm making sense. Yeah. So equity is saying... <laughs> Look, irrespective of core competencies, skills, and abilities that God has given us, uh, you need to have people represented, period, hard stop. What it does is it conditions us, uh, and this is the real point behind all of this, because some people would say, why would, why would like World Economic Forum and uh, Council Forum Relations talk about social credit scores and ESG and use DEI as a metric within these scoring systems because it's important for them to social condition us. We're in a whole nother level now. It's important that Americans are conditioned that everyone has to have uh, an equal level playing field. Because when the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset happens, that's what it's going to be. You have your masterminds, and then you'll have your pleas, so to speak. 
and everybody's, you know, with digital currency and all that, everybody's wiped out and everybody has the same. So they're conditioning us for the roof of the structure of DEI. I talked about the inner workings being Marx. The roof is Marx's utopia, communism. That's that's what it is. That's where so the DEI is wholly communistic. And there's two things that it does fundamentally. Those that are perpetually aggrieved, bitter, frustrated in that, it gives them the ability to take out retribution on anybody else. Number two, it socially conditions uh, managers, corporations, uh, banks and businesses and employees about uh, this, this level of substance that nobody is above the other. They're conditioning us. So it does two very strategic and pretty vital things if you're going to move us into that ultimate communistic flow. That was exceptional. I'm going to go right to Mario for I, I have written down a number of questions. I'm going to go to Mario first. Cannot hear you. You're on mute. Yes, thank you so much. That was uh, amazing the way you uh, described and explained everything to our viewers. Um, number one, in terms of the focus, we're seeing a lot of push for transgender um, or LBGT uh, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, how much of the pushes for transgender versus minorities and African American on uh, for employment? Uh, transgenders, uh, euphemistically speaking, run the world right now. That's my opinion. Uh, it's not scientific, but just my opinion. So. So what's happening is transgenders are stomping on womanhood. The whole, the whole idea about women goes away. That distinction of a woman, you know, trans is above that. Uh, blacks are still, um, we still have a good position of power within this DEI paradigm, but trans, if you're trans, tip of the spear, man, you are at the top um, because, <clears throat> So um, the other part of this whole Marxist thing here, a lot of people don't understand really what was Marx's motivation. I gave you a little bit of his history, but the other part of his motivation, uh, in order to see a communist utopia, you must completely change the paradigm of every existing hegemonic influence. That means that you change the definition of family, you change the definition of what it means to be a male or a female. You change the definition of how you take care of your children and you over-sexualize them so they become completely a 180. Everything, and Marx, he was, he was, if you read his works, he says, look, this is the only way that we're gonna see the communist utopia is we must do a 180, basically he called it, we must, critically assess, it was critical assessment in his time, critically assess every single tradition and completely change it. What does it mean to be a kid? Change it. What does it mean to be a, a man or a woman? Change it. What does it mean to be a family? Change everything. So in a pure Marxist flow, this trans thing is, is big, it's strategic, because now it, it positions us that Everything that was is not, 
So already we're being batted down. You can't even talk against, the, you know, the, the trans movement or, you know, and and so it, it it's it's a it's a level of ideological sub, subversion that I don't know if you've read Bismanov, but he was a, a KGB excuse me KGB defector in the 1980s who says that. Uh, fundamentally, what the Russians and and, 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 and and those folks are doing is ideological subversion, uh, what the Hitler and, and the Nazis are doing, ideological subversion. So what that means is they, they basically demoralize you. I don't mean demoralize to the extent that you resign. There's nothing that I can do. That's one aspect of demoralization. But the other, if you really look at demoral, it's to decouple you from your morals that's what that's what it means decouple from your morals so it's to demoralize you so in other words it conditions us again social conditioning to this new reality that a male is not a male a female is not a female uh, you know they could be cats they could be whatever a 60 year old male can be a 13 year old girl i mean it's but it, 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 and after we have a certain amount of this it, and we try to fight it and we realize it's a, it, the whole world has gone this way, then we get demoralized, decoupled from our morals. And this positions us then for the commie takeover. So that, that's part of the strategy. But that is a great question. And the trans, they are at the top. Um, has has there been any accountability on BLM's financial impropriety? And we are seeing um, DeSantis in Florida uh, trying to hold accountability with CRT, ESG uh, 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 scores. Um, are we seeing that in other states? What can we do um, to counter what's happening? Yeah, it's a state-by-state -state thing. I think even Abbott and down in Texas is trying to do some things as well. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Christy Nome and some of these others who are clear red states, they, they must get out, get their state out of the whole ESG uh, you know, social credit scoring, which is a, ah. it's a the, the, the Chinese Communist Party thing. That's where a lot of this stuff started. So, so uh, they should do that. Now, as far as uh, BLM and their malfeasance and fraud and all those things that are well documented, uh, nothing's happening. Now, I haven't I haven't seen or heard anything. There were some attorneys generals that were supposedly. Uh, preparing lawsuits and and going to take them to court, have them sort of rec you know reconcile what what happened to the money. With but I haven't seen anything on that, so I have no idea. Um, because we're in an upside down, wholly corrupt, and in my opinion, full communist uh, takeover America right now. It's already here. Um, I don't know if we'll if, if if we'll have a conclusion to that. I, I don't know. Um. I was born in Havana, Cuba. Our, fa our family fled communist uh, Castro in 1960. Um, and I often question, are, are we already in a communist regime? Um, communist takeover um, is usually two stages uh, in Cuba. Um, uh, when Castro came to uh, take over the dictator Batista, it was a revolution nobody liked Batista, and he denied that he was uh, socialist. But then about a year and a half in um, as president, he said, I'm here, I'm a Marxist, and I'll be a Marxist until I die. That the, the, the ultimate declaration of the Democratic Party has it, but are we already 
in a communist uh, heading towards that and is there a way to turn this thing around yeah so uh yeah so i, I so that's a great great two questions the first question is is are we already in a and i i, I you know, when you don't have First Amendment rights, when you don't have Second Amendment rights, the entire Bill of Rights has been turned upside down. Whether we want to acknowledge at some level, oh, we still have a little bit of fundamentally with the folks, the, the clown show that we have right now in Washington, D.C. with the majority in, in the Senate and the guy in the, in the White House. Um, you know, we've, 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 we've transformed. We fully traversed, I think. We accelerated past socialism, a sort of a soft socialism coming out of the Trump era just two years ago, fully accelerated past Marxism, and now we're in that communistic flow. Because we, you know, free speech and all of that, we could literally be in, in prison. Uh, just look at January 6th. I mean, these people were unarmed and everything else, and they're imprisoned without, uh, you know, our, 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 there's some basic, you know, constitutional uh type things that should occur i mean they should have a speedy trial right to a speedy trial right to you know their, their accuser all these kind of, completely no you're in a gulag and that's just it we're throwing away the key i mean this this is not america i mean it's crazy so 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 you know we're i think we're full communistic in my opinion right now uh can we turn it back yes i think that if we have uh if we if we can do more between now and 24 get more of the states to continue to make radical changes to how they do their elections to where they won't be uh, you know, fully reliant on Dominion and some of these other nefarious uh, uh, election systems. Um, and, and a lot of states are going back to paper in that. I don't know if you've seen that, but there's movement, right? Uh, so I think that uh, you know, we can, as, if we turn this election around in 2024, but I think really, quite honestly, my opinion, I have no, I'm not, I mean, this is a homeboy from the street. My opinion is, look, if we don't do it in 2024, I mean, game over, man. <laughs> All they need is another couple more years. I mean, they're, we're already in position for, uh, you know, the digital currency. Right. Uh, Executive Order 14067 signed last year, and I think it was March 13th of last year. Uh, which gave a, a timeline of December 13th of 2022 to have all the banks, uh, you know, uh, basically adjudicate and make sure that they can accept those transactions. Uh, all the large banks are, have committed and they did that. They confirmed that they've done the tests, their infrastructure is ready. So all we need is the collapse of the dollar, which Biden is accelerating us too quickly um and and then we'll have the great reset and so um I, you know they don't need much they don't need a whole four years after 2024 i think 2024 if they win it's game over we're, we're in that uh you know great global reset kind of a paradigm great well thank you so much it's great seeing you i really appreciate it back to you Jim. You're you're on uh, you're on mute, Jim. Just a, a few moments ago, I finished talking to a finance guy, and he uh, he uh, brought me up to speed on something that I had not processed, and that was that fifty percent, forty to fifty percent in most cities, of the commercial real estate is empty. Yeah, fifty percent in many cities, forty percent in in most. 
people are working remotely from home and in many cities like New York, they're fleeing and from San Francisco, I think San Francisco is 40% commercial empty. People don't want to walk down the streets where all the homeless people may stab them. <clears throat> and so they're, they're fleeing those areas. Well, these loans, these are, these are loans held by regional banks that come due where the interest rate has gone from 2% to 6%. So when they go to renegotiate these loans, you see what begins to happen and regional banks collapse and we will literally have three, four, five banks. And it's all, we used to have several thousand banks, yeah. 25,000 banks in 1960 or something, we'll be down to five banks. Uh, yeah. And the control will be absolutely staggering as it relates to, and and, and of course the, the classic line is, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. That's right. <clears throat> they determine what's happy for us. Yeah. So we have, we'll have super regional banks. Like you said, it'll be a handful, maybe a little bit more, but not, not what we've been accustomed to. Uh, because of COVID and the lockdowns, a lot of these companies have seen that, look, you know, we could still have good productivity with people working from home. So there's no demands there to have people come in the office. So a lot of these, even if they are maintaining commercial space right now, they're shrinking it. They're saying, look, you know, our workforce comes in on a flexible schedule. We we need maybe only twenty five percent of what we currently are are, are on, on on paper for. But we'll we'll continue to see a consolidation and shrinkage in that. Uh, there's a lot of very very successful commercial real estate folks that are going to see their portfolios um, really erode significantly in the next eighteen months. Yeah. 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 Let me talk about affirmative action. Yeah. We, we, there's so many examples of where blacks were clearly discriminated, discriminated against in, in ungodly, unchristian fashion. I think of the, the World War II boys that were blacks that thought by fighting like they did when they came home, they'd be accepted for what they did. They bled, many of them died, many of them were injured, and they came back and they equally divided again, weren't recognized. Um, we think of the Muskegee Air, Airmen and other things like the Tuskegee Airmen and others like this who weren't, who weren't properly uh, honored. Now, on the flip side of that is the issue of what becomes a reverse discrimination. And how do we, how do, walk me through that. I, I'm going to give a yeah. couple, I'll give just three quick examples. Yeah. I was a student at Princeton Seminary a long time ago. We were both in the business office, an Asian, and, and, um, and they were in there. And I was trying to figure out how to pay my bill. And I had a job that summer. It was a, uh, a very hard job. It's door-to-door sales. Door-to-door sales is one of the most difficult jobs in the world. You have to deal with a lot of rejection, enormous rejection. And I was selling Bible books, Bible dictionaries, Bible commentaries, etc. Southwestern Company employed 8,000 of us. It was the largest employer of college students. But it was hard. It was hot. It was difficult. You had to, you were to work 80 hours a week. That was the, that's what they expected you to. And it was, it was just difficult. And so my friend who's there, an Asian guy, I said, Hey, I, I can offer you a job through our company. What do you, what do you do? I said, I told him, he says, I don't want to do that. At that point, the person across the counter arrives and said, Oh, for you, we've got scholarships. The implication for me, he was Asian. I wasn't. You, you, you get the picture. Now, there may have been some other factors, but I remember just sitting there and feeling a form of discrimination that felt like a real ouch. 
Then there's a young man about two years ago, three years ago, I was having a conversation. He's probably the most talented uh, young man I've ever been around in terms of his grades were just off the charts. He was so brilliant. He was humble. He was godly. He was a, a super athlete. He was very musical. He could do the, the, theater. He, he just, it was just kind of stunning that one guy would have all his talent. Well, he applied to med school and, and, and Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, all these schools went after him. And, and he said, no, I want to be a missionary. He wanted to be a missionary for a couple of years. He came back to apply to med school. And I said, now, will he get accepted? And a person in the know on all this process said, I don't know. I said, what? Visibility? And he just simply said quietly to me, he's the wrong color scan. He's white. Now, he did get into med school, and he's in med school. But there was a serious question that this unbelievably talented, he is, I think he's the most talented young man I've ever been around. He might not get in because he was white. So then, and then the, then the last point, if we take the, the what's the percentage of African-Americans in our nation was about 13%. 13. Yeah. And so if we take that number and we apply that to the NFL and the NBA. <laughs> I've always wanted to be on the Dallas Cowboys. Now, the fact is, is it, in my skin color, it, I have no athleticism. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't even make it in high school football all that well. <laughs> but secretly, I'd really like to be on the Dallas Cowboys. I yeah. thought maybe I just self-identify as, as a member of the team. <laughs> there you go. But when we talk about these things, why is I, I'm proud of the African-Americans who've excelled in athletics. I think yeah. it's pretty impressive. I said, wow, that's that's impressive what they've accomplished. But why is there no recognition that, 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 that I mean, there's a disproportionate number of blacks in the NFL, for example, I would contend, compared to the population. Right. Yeah. And so I, I, now, and now I'm, I want to capitalize all that with one other thing. We're told we whites and blacks don't get along. We're told we're told we don't get along. We don't get along. Don't get along. And for the last three years. Everywhere I, everywhere I go, I just watch anytime I see blacks and whites together. And everywhere I look, they're getting along fine. They love each other. They're, yep. enjoying, they're married to each other. They're, they're happy. When I go up my, my, my wife's former church that she was in for, I married her, it was 85% black. Nobody, nobody talks about color. It's yep. no, no thing. Her, two of her, we go to a family reunion, two of her brothers are married to blacks. That never comes, it isn't even thought about. It's just, because blacks and whites and Asians and Hispanics get along really yeah. well in, in school until someone comes along and says, you've got to hate each other. So exactly. I've, I've asked a multifaceted question. You can poke at any angle you want to try to answer and respond to all this. So what was the question though? You... Well, the question, the question is we have, Affirmative action is a yes. form of reverse racism. Yes, yes. There's a challenge there. And that we don't, I don't want, the other part was I want to acknowledge there has been horrible discrimination. Yes. Again, when I see pictures of water fountains, blacks here and whites here, that's just, that's just, that's just beyond my ability to grasp that people would be treated like that. Are yeah, let's talk that about that. that. I think I got your question now. So let's talk about the worst reverse discrimination. So affirmative action 
um, it, it was deemed necessary to finally get people accustomed to seeing blacks in the workplace because we just really weren't getting that many opportunities comparatively. Uh, so it really did open up, and, and, and I think it was probably a good thing for the various uh, affirmative action programs that were out there, but it still relied on meritocracy. So you had to have merit. You had to have, be able to, you would get your equal opportunity, but you need to be able to prove that you can type, right? These, this is typewriter days, right? Prove that you can type at 85 words a minute. Uh, yeah, 85 words a minute. Prove that you could, you know, write a letter using reasonable, I mean, we still had to get in there and, and do, you know, basic proofs to say that, look, you know, I deserve an opportunity to get this job. So affirmative action was, was very, very different than this. This is the, this is the sort of neo-affirmative action, if you will. Um, and it goes well beyond uh, equal opportunity. It goes into uh, equal outcomes. It's saying that, look, I don't care about whether I'm skilled or not. We are going to have equal outcomes here. And if you get a, have, if you get a, a bitter and aggrieved person who now has a position of power as a DEI executive, sits at the board level, that person or persons are beating the board members across the, the, the head and, and neck telling them how terrible they are and, and that Blacks are underrepresented and encouraging them to make very specific uh, downsize uh, decisions, which would include most times, or we're seeing, I've heard a number of stories, which would include going after your highly competent, highly skilled, proven, uh, meritorious workers, which happen to be white, and show them the, show them the door. Um, and then you hire, you know, hire some others. And, and so that's happening. It, it reverse DEI enshrines reverse discrimination. That's the heartbeat of it. <clears throat> has nothing to do with, uh, you know, merit. It has everything to do with grievance, retribution. So we can say that affirmative action initially in its original form served a critical need and a, and a legitimate purpose but affirmative action 2.0 is rewarding mediocrity as opposed to merit is that a safe way of saying it uh yeah except uh, you know and in, in some cases not even not even mediocrity mediocrity insinuates that hey you know you can do an average job no this is <laughs> this is basically saying look you know Blacks need to be in this position, or Asians need to be in this position. You need to just put them there. Well, they've never done this before. They've never managed people. Ah, that doesn't matter. That's old school. You know, we're doing a communist play here. Put these people in position. Yeah, no, yeah. They, they can learn. You know, that kind of thing. So it's it's a, it's a whole different vibe. <laughs> it's just, yeah, well, it's, it seems strange that it's being coerced because every every board I've been a part of, or or, or a commission I've been a part of. Any group like that uh, among ourselves as whites, the consensus has been we want yeah. Hispanics and blacks and Asians to be more strongly represented on here. We seek them, them out in contrast to we do not want or do not allow, cannot for biblical reasons, allow homosexuals and transgender right. beyond this. Uh, have no objection 
women can serve as, as well as men, can serve on the boards, et cetera. Uh, that's been well proven. But the issue of it comes across a moral issue on the homosexual and transgender part of that question. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about reparations in San Francisco. They're proposing paying $5 million to every black. Now, you live in the San Francisco area, so you can pick up $5 million bucks pretty quickly that way. So it sounds like a sweet deal. Now, what they are taking into account, what if the whites who are paying that, some of their ancestors fought in the Civil War to free the blacks, what if some of the blacks being paid actually were part of that percentage of blacks who had black slaves? What if you get the... I, I tell you what, um, here's a scenario I use with everybody who tries to talk to me about reparations. I say, okay, let's have that conversation. Um, reparations is always to the person, the people that actually literally did the harms. You, you know, in other words, and I give this example, if, if I ran over my neighbor's very expensive dog coming out of my driveway and my neighbor sued me and uh, I show up at the court and tell the judge, look, you know, he was on my street. The street is part of the city. The city should pay this man for his dog. I get laughed out, you know, contempt of court, and he'd throw the book at me. I'd probably have to pay double because it's a preposterous notion. So if you have a, a legitimate claim for reparations or some sort of restitution, it's always to the people that literally did the harms. Now, it just so happens, like you said, uh, Dr. Garlow, we actually did have a civil war. We actually did have one particular faction of people that hated blacks, that were white supremacists and racists, and that wanted to keep them enslaved as long as they could. And then you had another faction of people that were in the North and that fought for, to set people like me free. They already went through uh, their, their legacy assets, which would have been their grandfathers, fathers, and nephews, and all of those that were killed in that. So why would you go to them? So my point is you can't overlay reparations for all of America. Every taxpayer now has to pay reparations to blacks. No, that's ridiculous. Um, and so what I want to do with the city of San Francisco, and if you have any attorneys out there, have them work with me on it, is go to the city of San Francisco and say, look, this is, this is fine, reparations. Uh, but what we want to do is we want to um, make sure that that particular faction of people who were responsible, solely responsible for slavery and lynching and rapes and maiming of blacks, that they do a matching fund for the city of San Francisco. Uh, because they're the ones who did it, and it seems to me like they're being absolved in all of these conversations. Why aren't you going to that particular party and saying, look, you guys want reparations, here we go. We're doing it in San Francisco, we want you to match us. They're still here today, that particular party that did all these evils. Why are they never mentioned? Never. Kendi won't mention them, Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, Robin D'Angelo won't mention them. They, they do mention in their books, and I've read them both, uh, systemic racism, but they don't mention the people that literally did the evils of slavery. Why? Uh, because it's the party that they belong to. Now is the time that we bring that party to the forefront. We give that particular party, which is always pushing for reparations, they should be fine with it. We, 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 we make them a party to the suit in San Francisco and say, look, 
San Francisco's doing reparation, we want you to match that fund. <clears throat> the point is, you know, the, the whole idea is, is we need to put these people on front street. And they need to finally come to grips with they're the party that precipitated all these evils. Uh, just overlaying and generalizing for all of America or all white folks, that's unfair and it's ridiculous. These people have not had the spotlight on them and they have never been held accountable for their evils. Yeah, that is- So, that so is, that's what I would do. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in Germany, for example, the Nazis, you can identify art that was stolen from the homes of Jews. You know where that art is. You know who stole it and who holds it today. Wow. You can you know who is the child or grandchild of the person who owned that. That's identifiable, specific. Reparations in that case are very good. Or insurance companies who refuse to pay to this day the Jews or the offspring of the Jews who lost everything in the world, who owed them. That that's that's actually is, is a real live issue today. There is bona fide reparations for harm, specifically identifiable, not vague generalities. So the, the concept of reparations is, is not a bad one. It actually is scriptural. And I, if our prison system would follow appropriate, some scriptural notions, <clears throat> the offender, instead of being locked up just in prison, he would have to make reparations yeah. Payment to the aggrieved, the person right. who lost limb, life, limb, relatives, or you know, someone killed the family or, or, or property, whatever. Yeah. And so reparations in and of itself is a good and godly construct. But when distorted and applied in a macro level with That's no right. specificity, it, it's thievery. It is. It is. And so my point is, is we can have this whole conversation go away if we actually get that other political party and um, put them on front street and have them put them on the defense and have them try to reconcile. Are you going to pay the, you know, you know what I mean? So, oh, yeah, so yeah, it no, really I, brings everything sort of to, to life. <laughs> it, it, the, the, those who I don't like to call them left, right versus left, because they're really right versus wrong. So the wrong, the biblically wrong in this issues are just so full of illogicality, illogicality and irrationality. I'll give an example, what you shared. You shared about Marx. What was Marx against? The institutional family. Who was supporting him? His institutional family. Yeah. He's against the nuclear family while he wasn't making a living and his daddy and mommy having to support him. The institutional family was caring for that, which he wanted to, to, to for him, an institution he wanted to destroy, and he's almost succeeded, quite frankly. Yeah. But, hey, Kevin, we, you, you're you're such a joy to talk to. My goodness, I always enjoy every time I get to hang with you. And folks, uh, you, you schedule Kevin McGarry to come speak to your church, any other organization. He's one of the finest speakers I have heard. I've heard him quite a number of times. First time I really connected with. It's not our first time to meet. The first time I connected, I I, I put him on the spot. And I said, we had a speaker cancel, but it's only a couple minutes. I want you to speak for two to three minutes. Go for it. And when he started, this was in Washington, D.C., 
I turned to the guy doing the t- running the timer, and I said, "Shut the timer off and just let him go." Now he he is that good. Kevin, give your website. How can people contact you? How can they get all of your books? You got six or seven books, and it's tell me about books. Tell us when this comes in, who the publisher is, or how they can get it. So uh, so I'm working on this one. It'll be out by June. Uh, I can go through a publisher, but, you know, it's a long process. It takes, you know, six to eight months for them to get it out. This is a this is an a, a urgent need for us to have uh, be able to have context for DEI. Yes. So I'm going to self-publish it again like I did the last one. Uh, it'll be on Amazon <clears throat> within a couple of months. So... Uh, you can you can find out more about me and about us at everyblm.com, everyblm.com. Uh, right now, we're going uh, around the country and we're helping uh, companies, if you work for a company, if you're a business owner, uh, or church organizations to uh, become certified in racial unity. So as opposed to being, uh, you know, having this sort of compulsory issue that you, you Everybody in your church, everybody in your business has to be has to go through some racial sensitivity training so you check off so you can deal do business with the state or do business with the feds. Uh, now you'll be able to invite us in. We'll give you training and we'll certify uh, you and all your employees as because we have multiple modules certify you based based on the modules. But uh, you have the ability now to not have to go through a Marxist. Uh, really, you know, uh, training that really tears up your company because it'll it'll isolate everybody and have everybody up in arms. Uh, we'll actually literally come in there and do provide racial training. So that you can find on the website as well. You can, this book again is uh, DEI 3D, and that'll probably be out by June. Maybe you, Dr. Garlo, you can have me back on when it gets, comes close to coming out, and we could you know help people understand. I that get was great. I, I'm really blown away by what you said. It means somebody who's required to do racial diversity training, they can say, no, I'm taking this one and, and you're you're approved. Oh my goodness. Give that website one more time. Everyblm.com, everyblm.com. We have a separate website for uh for companies, you know, and, and organizations. And that's our Reconciliation Consulting Group, RGC, or RCG, uh, Reconciliation Consulting Group, uh, LLC. And uh, that website, you can go to our main website, and we'll give you information on that if we need to, to do that. And that, that way, it's not attached to a ministry or uh, anything like that. If, you, if you're in a secular company, you just want you know, the ability to be able to you know, reference our training as opposed to the crazy Marxist training. Just we'll give you a website to do that. Every BLM dot uh, org or dot com. Dot com or dot org. It doesn't matter. You both get you there. Okay. Uh, just folks go to there and pick up his book. And uh, that's, that's a not-for-profit corporation, right? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. And so you can make donation. I want to encourage yeah. you to support him economically and financially. Make a donation to that this is organization is very worthy of support and and kevin is i just think he's one of the more profound communicators uh in america right now I wish, if i could I'd, I'd try to get him in every state legislature ledger uh we can every place we possibly could kevin i want you to lead in prayer for this for the racial healing of america 
Yes. Lead in prayer, and then right after that, we're just going to go straight on into more prayer. Yes. Okay. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're so grateful and thankful you've given us the privilege of prayer. We thank you, Father, that you hear the righteous and you do answer them. So we give you praise, glory, and honor for all of your sovereignty and your grace that you bestowed upon us even until this time. Father, we thank you for this conversation that we've had today and how you're allowing, Lord, these these words, not my words, but these words of truth from you directly to come out to your people. We ask that as this book is published and as, as these people uh, review this, uh, this, uh, this video, that they will be encouraged and inclined uh, to begin to see you and your kingdom in a, in, a, in a different way, that they will begin to perceive the demonic strategies that would attempt to malign and abuse them, and that they will see a way out. We ask, Father, that you would give them wisdom and clarity and understanding as to how to navigate this, these, the culture and the society that we're currently living in in these tumultuous times. We ask for your wisdom because we cannot discern in our own, uh, in our own strength how to, where to go, how to do, and how to be. So we ask that your grace will be more than sufficient for us in this season. <clears throat> Excuse me. We pray, Father God, that, that you will begin to not only reconcile and restore and unify uh, the people who have seen this video, but we ask that you would put a new level of leadership uh, in the various state houses, in the various states, and in the federal offices so the United States can begin to heal and be restored. We know that as things look now, it looks like we have a very short window, but you are God. We are our, your creation, and the United States is yours, so you, have, you are the final authority. So we ask that you will begin to make the important changes that need to be made, that you will begin to soften the hearts and the minds of men, that you'll begin to, be, to, to, to actually unify the various ethnicities around the truth, which is you are a God that is not a respecter of persons. And you created one man and one woman coming from one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And we've all come through that seed together. And so we thank you that you have given us one race, one human race, you're not a respecter of any race. We're all your divine creation. And we give you praise uh, that we can unify together as brothers and sisters around that truth and that reality. Make that reality the reality of everyone who we come in contact with so we can begin to fellowship and uh, encourage one another in you. Father, we thank you. We praise you for it. Give you all the glory and honor. It's in the mighty name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed Podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.